Can you figure out what these lines of English literature have in common? Must be in want of a wife. Dorothy lived in the midst of the great Kansas prairies with Uncle Henry, who was a farmer, and Aunt Em, who was the farmer's Susan, Edmund. There were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And it was the best of times. Foolishness. You have it? They are the beginnings of great stories. Pride and Prejudice, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and of course, what might be my personal favorite, A Tale of Two Cities. Great stories have great beginnings. They need great beginnings. And there is no greater beginning to the true story of God's grace to sinners like us than the book of Genesis and its opening words. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your copy of God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible word to Genesis chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 1. This morning, we begin our journey through the book of Genesis. Genesis is itself a book of beginnings. It's about the beginning of the world, the beginning of God's purposes for man, the beginning of the Savior through a particular people, the children of Abraham. This book of beginnings was especially important to the children of Abraham, the, the people of Israel. They were the book's first audience as they stood at Mount Sinai and began their life as a new nation. Uh, you'll recall that the nation of Israel was created through the exodus from Egypt, and Moses, through this book, was teaching the newly created nation who their God was, what he was like, why, the, why he was worthy of their trust and obedience. And the Bible's beginning is relevant to us because Israel's God is the God who made the universe. He's the God who made us, each one of us here this morning. He's the God who made you. And so, if we are to know him, we should read and listen to his gracious self-disclosure. That's what this is. God is speaking to us in his word and revealing who he is and what he's like. If we are to know who we are, if we are to know why we live and move and have our being, then we need to listen carefully to what God has says, said of himself, of his creation, and of us. And that's what I hope that we'll do this morning as we study Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, setting through chapter 2, verse 3. Here's the main point of, of this text that we're looking at together this morning. If I could put it to you, everything and everyone for his glory. So we should worship, obey, and imitate him. Let me say that again. God created everything and everyone for his glory. So we should worship, obey, and imitate him. Uh, this portion of God's word, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, can be mapped out in four distinct movements. There's a progression to this chapter. First, we have the founding of everything in the first movement. Second, we have the forming of everything. Third, we have the filling of everything. And finally, we have the finishing of everything, which is where we'll finish. So, let's begin by examining the first movement that happens in this portion of God's word, where we see the founding of everything. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 1, beginning there in verse 1, just the first two verses for now. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." We could hardly read more remarkable words than these as the Bible 
opens. In these first few verses, we learn that before anything else existed, God did. In these first few verses, we learn that everything that exists in creation came from God, the creator. In these first few verses, we learn that God had a goal in his creation. And in these first few verses, we learn that God is all-powerful. With those words, in the beginning, God, we learn that God eternally existed. God simply is. Unlike creation, he has no origin or source. He is self-existent. He was before all time as, and in, is indeed the author of time. He has no beginning, and the only reason that the universe has a beginning is because of him. Everything that we can see and observe presumes him. Everything utterly depends upon him for source, for substance, and for sustenance. Subsequent scriptures reveal that he was and was active before the foundation of the world. So Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that he was loving and choosing before the foundation of the world. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you, God is utterly, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is utterly prior, separate from his creation. And this is a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creation. At one time, the creation didn't exist, but the creator always has. Now, you should know that the name for God here in Genesis chapter 1 is Elohim. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's actually a plural noun, and this is probably a hint at the Trinity. After all, we have the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of God there, hovering over the face of the waters in verse 2. Do you see that? And as we learn later, we read actually earlier in the service from John chapter 1, verse 1 and 3, through 3, uh, we, we, we read that Jesus was with God, the second person of the triune God is with God in the beginning, and that all things were actually made through him. So you see, the, the work of creation is a thoroughly Trinitarian work. The one God in three persons eternally existed and then created. What is more, since our God made the world, he has made himself known. God is and he is to be known. That's what the opening phrase of Genesis teaches us. He is unique in his eternally existent person, but he is also unique in what he powerfully produced. He created now, in the Hebrew, that word for create is only used in reference to God. So humans may make things, but only God creates things, according to the Bible. And do you see what he created? He created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a, a way of speaking in Hebrew called a merism. So you mention something at the top and at the bottom in order to compass everything in between. Right? We have uh, phrases like this in our English language. So the boy was dressed in his Sunday best from head to toe. So the point is to grab everything at the top and everything at the bottom and to put everything in between as a single thing. So what Moses is saying when he says God created the heavens and the earth, he's saying that God created absolutely everything in the universe from top to bottom. So God is not only foundational in the beginning, God, but he also founded everything. He created the heavens and the earth. And this is where Moses, the author of Genesis, reveals that God has a goal in his creation. He tells us, you see these words, he tells us the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Moses is saying that the creation lacked definition. It was desolate and it was dark. In other words, it wasn't any kind of place that man could dwell. So what we're going to see God do from here on out in the creation week, in the narrative, is to form everything and then to fill everything. So God's going to form everything in days one to three. 
And then he's going to fill everything in days four to six. He does this so that what is inhabitable becomes habitable for man. That's what needs to happen if there's no definition. It needs to be formed. That's what needs to happen if the creation is desolate. It needs to be filled. So this is God's goal, to move the world from void to very good, from empty to enjoyable by his creatures, from boundless and blank to bountiful and beautiful and blessed. At the end of verse 2, we see there that the third person of the Trinity is brooding over the waters there. Now imagine that you're an Israelite standing at Mount Sinai and you hear this about the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. What great water event have you just experienced You have seen God wall up the waters on both sides of the Red Sea so that you can walk across on dry ground. And here, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters reminds you that God is in control of those waters, which are dangerous and deadly. God is not subject to his creation. He's not underneath it. No, he rules over it. So here Israel is being reminding they have a God who rules over all. It's encouraging to their faith. And notice that God is all alone here. He has no rival. Moses is deliberately contradicting ancient Near Eastern creation mythologies. Some people have said that Moses borrowed uh, them from, uh, from his time learning in Pharaoh's court. He was educated there, a great place of education. And so he, he knew of these stories, and so he's, he's borrowing them as he writes Genesis 1. But what is actually happening is Moses is correcting and contradicting their myths by telling the true story of creation. You see, creation didn't come about because two gods battled it out and the outcome was the stuff of creation. No, no, no. There was only one God, unmatched, unrivaled, and he created all things by the word of his power. This means that while creation should leave us in wonder, it should also lead us to worship and that it is not to be worshiped itself. We prayed about this this morning in our prayer of confession. The nations surrounding Israel, Egypt, Canaan, those in Mesopotamia, etc., would all worship different elements of the creation. So we're going to read different elements of creation here later on in the chapter. And Moses is telling us that God made them all, not that they are gods and to be worshipped, but that the God who made them is to be worshipped. So nothing in the creation, nothing in the heavens and the earth is to be worshipped like the, the Canaanites or the pagans would do. Rather, the God who eternally exists, who created all things, who brings his creation to its detailed and designed goal. The God who has all power is the one who is worthy of worship, worthy of praise, worthy of love and devotion. God who founded everything is worthy of worship. He's worthy of obedience and imitation. Does this God, the God of the Bible, does he have your worship? If not, why not? Frankly, you you owe it to him. We're going to find that you were made by him. He's the author of your life. You are his creation, and he is worthy of your praise. As I said, these first two verses set the agenda for what follows from the rest of creation. They form something of a summary statement. They tell us about the God who creates everything. And then flowing out of them in verse 3 and following, we're told how God forms and fills everything. So the first thing that happens is God forms everything. This is our second point. Number two, the forming of everything. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 1, verses 3, let there be one, verses 3 to 13. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit which is in their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Then God brought, God brought, then the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Well, in these verses, we read the first three days of the creation account. As you may have observed, each day follows a very predictable pattern. We're told that God speaks, right? Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. And then we're told that there's actually a response, and there was light. Then God actually, he steps back, kind of reflects on his creation, evaluating it, and God saw that it was good. And later on the sixth day, he'll say, and it was very good. The pattern concludes with a time marker, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And this pattern actually holds throughout all of the first six days of creation. In these first three days, God begins forming and defining his creation. First, he forms the boundaries for light and darkness. He separates them and establishes a rhythm of evening and morning. Now, keep in mind that day one is going to parallel day four, uh, where God forms light and darkness in day one. He's going to fill the day and the night with the sun and the moon and the stars in day four. So how is there light on day one without the sun, moon, and the stars? I'm honestly not quite sure. says, covers himself as with light, as with a garment. Psalm 104, verse 2. And who we learn of the Lord Jesus and read earlier that he is the light of the world. God is the ultimate source of light. So it's no trouble for him. We might puzzle over how there might not be sun, moon, or stars just yet. But shouldn't we wonder at the fact that God uttered a mere word and there was light? Does this not reveal his supreme sovereignty? That God speaks and creates, shows that creation is not a part of him, but produced by him. It's separate from him, but brought into existence by his speech. Scholars refer to this as uh, this work, God's work as creation ex nihilo, creation out of nothing. And the manner in which God does it is a divine fiat. It's a creation by command. More than that, the creation is absolutely immediate. God speaks, and it was so, immediately. This is perhaps one of the most crucial aspects of the creation account that we need to bring home to our very own hearts. God is the author of creation, and therefore he has authority over his creation. God is the author of your life, and therefore he has authority over your life. When he speaks, you should immediately obey. He has spoken not only in creation, but also in his word, the Bible. So all that he says, we should do joyfully, and immediately, just like the light and the darkness, the sky and the sea, and the rest of the creation. In day two, which we find there in verses six to eight, do you see that there? God forms the sky and the sea. And he once again calls them by name. That's a way of showing authority. You have authority to name things. The sky and the sea are not yet inhabited by uh, winged creatures and water creatures. That'll happen on day five. 
but the skies and the sea are one step closer to habitation. So that's what happens on the second day. God forms the expanse and separates the sky from the sea. And since two days have passed, you're probably wondering, well, how long are these days? They're 24 hours long. Uh, To be sure, there are good and faithful Christians who disagree. Uh, Godly believers, uh, some godly believers think that these are longer periods of time. But let me give you at least three reasons why they're really only 24 hours long. First, because the Hebrew word for day, yom, when attached to a numeral, always refers to a 24-hour period of time in the Old Testament. So what do we have here? Look at, look at verse 8. Days attached to numerals. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Second reason, these are 24-hour days, because God himself is deliberately setting a six-and-one-day pattern of working and resting through the creation week. We're going to see that especially at the end of our text. Third, because the audience receiving this book The Israelites standing on Mount Sinai, listening to Moses, would have most naturally understood the references to the days being the very 24-hour cycles that they experienced and were to keep in imitation of God. Perhaps the old catechism says it best. The work of creation is, is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. I could say more, but we probably only have time for less. So, we should consider the third day. Look at verses 9 to 13 there. Day three, God forms or he gives shape and definition to the land. This land in day six will be filled with animals and humans. For now, it's simply prepared for habitation. God calls it to sprout sprout forth vegetation, plants, and trees, all of which will be necessary for animals and humans to live and dwell on it. And we need to recognize the care of our God in this creative action. He cares for his creatures, for us. He's, he's giving thought to his creation, intentionally designing it for us and for our flourishing. Note, too, that he even makes the creation itself to flourish with fertility, self-sustaining in many ways. God wants to make it a good place for us to live. And after his creation, he sees that it is indeed good. When God sees that his creation is good, you see there at the end of verse 12, what he is seeing is that it's beneficial and beautiful. It's precisely what he intended it to be. We need to embrace, really, the goodness of God's creation in our lives, to to enjoy it, to delight in it, to delight in God through it. The Apostle Paul affirms this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, saying, for everything created by God is good. The the goodness of creation speaks to the goodness of our God. If your view of God is he's he's a hard master, then you've misunderstood him entirely. He's a loving, heavenly father. He knows what is good for you, and he only gives you what is good. He made the world good, and for you to enjoy. In the first three days, God formed everything. In the next three days, days four, five, and six, God fills what he has formed. So let's consider our third point, the filling of everything. Follow along now as I read Genesis 1, just verses 14 to 23 for now. And God, let them be for... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night. And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. And there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. 
So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. We'll stop there for now. In these verses, we encounter days four and five. And if nothing, they are astonishing. I mean, in day four, God speaks and establishes the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. And then in three little words that almost appear to be tacked on as an afterthought, at the end of verse 16, do you see them? We read this, and the stars. (laughs) Billions and billions of stars are almost cast as, oh yeah, the Lord made those two. I mean, do you remember what the Lord says of himself with respect to the stars in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 and 26? He says this, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He named every star, placed every star, and not one of them is missing by his powerful providence. We should marvel at his might and his majesty. The sun and the moon declare God's power. The heavens declare God's glory. Remember Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. I think we heard that earlier in the service. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. You hear that? The creation speaks of God. Do you want proof of God's existence? Do you want divine revelation? Look up, look around. There's a reason that something exists rather than nothing, and that reason is that God made everything. God was deliberate in his creating. He didn't leave things to chance. He established the seasons. Did you notice that in verse 14? Read verse 14 again. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Well, friends, this signals to us that the world that God made is orderly, predictable, and dependable. Scientists can study this world precisely because God made it orderly, predictable, and dependable. Their work actually depends upon God's work in creation. And they should give thanks to God. The best scientists should be the best worshipers of God. On day five, we find, in verses 20 to 23, God fills the seas and the skies with water creatures and winged creatures. And when you think of the diversity of God's creation in these realms, it really is astounding, right? God fills the seas, the waters, with everything from whales to walleyes. God fills the skies with everything from herons to hummingbirds. Frequently, it seems like we've really not discovered all that God has made in these realms, right? It seems like there's some creature in the deep that we have yet to meet and are just now discovering, or some bird, some beautiful bird deep in the rainforest somewhere that we have yet to meet. They're not new. They've been there. They're new to us. God made them. We only just discover them. We've seen God fill the seas and the skies. Let's read of how God filled the land on day six. Follow along as I read Genesis 1, verses 24 to 31 now. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every, thi- every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, on day six, God fills the land with every kind of animal and humans. In verses 24 and 25... We're given different groupings of animals. I wonder if you noticed them there. The the point of these kind of different groupings of animals is not to produce an exhaustive list, but rather to summarize the entirety of the created creation of these animals. And these groupings would have been kind of the groupings that the people of Israel would have thought of the land animals in. God created everything. And notice in verses 24 and 25, we see that phrase, according to their kinds. Uh, These are distinct kinds of animals. And at least one implication of that phrase is they don't breed across their kinds. So, uh, dogs don't breed with cats. In other words, God limited the animals to reproduce according to their kinds, not across their kinds. This is one reason that theistic evolution and certainly macroevolution does not cohere with the creation account or the evidence, I think, that's before our eyes. Darwin and those holding to an evolutionary perspective have been looking for support, long looking for support in the fossil record. And after 150 years, they have yet to find that support. In conversations with our friends on this matter, I think it's important to reinforce the word theory. The evolutionary theory is that. It's a theory. Now, many want to know just how long ago God made the world. Was it thousands or billions of years ago? And for whatever it's worth, I don't think it was billions or even millions of years ago. Other believers disagree. Uh, They see glimpses in Genesis, which they think would allow for such a view. But given the manner of God's creation, speaking, and the immediate response of God's creation, being made, The the timing of God's creation, six 24-hour days, the precision of God's creation, and the irreducible complexity of God's creation, and the maturity of God's creation, land already producing vegetation and animals and humans potent and ready to reproduce themselves. I just don't see how there's room for the view in the text. So, let me try to answer the question. How long ago did God make the earth? Was it 6,000 or 7,000 or 10,000 years ago? I don't know. It was a really long time ago. And you can ask the Lord God when you get to glory, uh, when it was. Uh, What we do learn from Genesis 1 is that when God made it, it was good, very good. And so up to Genesis chapter 1, verse 25, we've learned that God made everything good. And beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we learn that God made everyone. So we've seen God make everything, and now we see God make everyone. Every day of the creation week was a good day. But not every day was equally good. So the sixth day, you see there at verse 31 says, says it was very good. This day also includes the exalted, let us make declaration. 
So previously, we've only read, and God said. But in verse 26, the language is shifted to let us make. And this should get our attention. Something important is happening here in the narrative. Uh, some have suggested that this, um, this language of let us make is, um, is kind of something like the, the plural of majesty. Think of the royal we, right? So when the, uh, uh, the spokesperson for the, for the White House says, our administration has taken the following action, right? They're, they're using the royal we, kind of the plural of majesty. Another proposal for kind of let us make uh, is God speaking kind of to the divine court and assembly, the, the host of angels there before him. Uh, we see glimpses of the heavenly court in places like 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 19, and Job 1 and 2. But I think both of these proposals actually fail to adequately take into account what we've already considered in the text itself. All right, the text itself in verse 26 says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Right? God did not make man in the image of the angels. And God the Father is not alone in creation. Right? The spirits are already present in verse 2. And the son, we learn in John 1, was the one through whom all things were made. So what we're seeing here is a hint at an intra-Trinitarian dialogue where the three persons of the triune Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, agree upon the next creative action, making man in the image of God. Not after a monkey, but after the image of the maker. In this way, this creature will be unlike any of the other creatures on God's green earth. Here we actually meet the pinnacle of God's creation, man. That man is made in God's image and likeness, reminds us that while there is a relationship, there is not an exact replication. So likeness means that there are righteousness, holiness, with dominion over the creatures, right? God, he possesses all of those attributes. Uh, like God, man has knowledge, has, has consciousness, and is able to consider the world before him. Uh, like God, man was created in righteousness and holiness, free from sin, free of sin in the beginning. Man is good. He's able to do good. And like God, man could exercise authority and dominion. We'll see that especially in chapter 2 where Adam names the animals. There are differences, though, between God and man, just like there are differences between fathers and sons. Think of Adam and his sons. Uh, there are differences between Adam and his sons. And still, there's a relational connection between them. A few significant differences between God and man are that man has a body, that he's finite, that he's changeable. Whereas God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body like men. God is infinite and unchangeable. So while some of God's attributes are communicated to man in his making, other attributes remain incommunicable and belong to God alone. They set, set him apart as the creator and ruler of, uh, of the universe. But this being made in the image of God, it clearly sets man above the other creatures of the earth. This is an exalted and honored position. So what does, it made to be, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, it means that man reflects God and is dependent upon him for his identity. It means that man represents God as a steward of God's creation. So he's, he's, he's to rule over the creation just as God would, using authority well and for the benefit of others. It means being made in God's image means relating, that man relates to his creator as a son or a daughter. If you read Luke's account and find Jesus' genealogy there, you'll see that Adam is called a son of God. It means relating to the creator as a son or daughter. And it also means having the capacity to relate to others in the community that God has placed you with. Being made in God's image means that man is righteous and holy in his initial and unfallen state. 
And even after the fall, so after Genesis 3, his fallen state, man still has a consciousness. He still knows right from wrong. He still knows categories of righteousness. He understands righteousness and from time to time is able to be righteous, do righteousness, but not perfectly without the help of God. Man, being made in God's image, also means that man is responsible to carry out the commission of Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. God gave man work for him to do. That means he's able to do that. So all of this is what it means to be made in God's image. And that man retains the image of God after his fall into sin is true. So subsequent texts, we'll eventually get to them, Lord willing, in the series. But we'll look at Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 to 3, and Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. These texts bring up the image of God there. And what they teach us is that man remains made in the image of God. Though it's marred by sin, he continues to hold the image of God in his character and person. And that is why every human life remains precious, worthy of dignity, honor, and protection from womb to tomb. That's why abortion and euthanasia are wicked, sinful, and offensive to God, because they demolish and murder precious image bearers. It's why slavery and ethnocentrism are wicked, sinful, and offensive to God, because they dehumanize precious image bearers. And we learn more about man. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 reveals that man is made in God's image as male or female. In other words, we must recognize that man is sexually dimorphic of two opposite but complementary forms. So every man and every woman equally bear the image of God. They each bear the image of God distinctly, right? A male is not a female, and a female is not a male. The gulf and gap between sex and gender cannot be crossed, no matter how many hormone supplements or horrifying surgeries are tried. And it will not do to hide our sex under the wrong clothing. Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 5 tells us, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Friends, we must speak the truth about our sex and gender visibly and verbally. The suppression of one's God-given sex is a suppression of the truth. It is sin, rejection, and rebellion against the Creator. And it will not lead to flourishing. Sex and gender are not what we feel, but what God formed when he made us in our mother's womb. Sex and gender are not adopted by a person, but assigned by God. Sex and gender are not socially constructed. They are divinely created. If you don't uh, if, we, if we don't submit to God and embrace the sex and gender that he's given to us, uh, we will falter. We get to choose our pronouns. God does. To choose our gender. God does. We don't get to choose our pronouns. God does. And that's because we are not in charge. God is. It's really that simple. If Genesis 1 teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is sovereign, not us. It teaches us that God is the author and the authority over his creatures and his creation. We ought to tell, as I said, the truth about our sex and gender verbally and visibly. And we can only affirm the truth about the sex and gender of others. Or else I think we're complicit in a lie. And increasingly, I'm persuaded that the halfway house of avoiding preferred names and pronouns will not bring our friends and loved ones face to face with the truth and the God of truth. At some point, love has to motivate us to speak the truth to someone struggling against their God-given sex. At some point, we have to tell the woman who's going by the name Midas, your name is Mary, 
And God made you a woman, and that is very good. Beloved, who will tell these friends the truth? Will you? In love, will you help them get off the path of misusing and even mutilating their bodies? You see, you are not harming or hurting them by telling them the truth in love. You are preventing them from harming and hurting themselves and their relationship to God any further. Speaking the truth in love is an undiluted good. While it is sin to conceal your God-given sex, it is also sin to reveal too much of your God-given sex. We should neither suppress our God-given sex, nor should we use it seductively. We need to honor our neighbors and seek to help them maintain chastity in heart and mind. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to cover every curve. That doesn't mean male and female have to wear cardboard boxes around this earth. No, but it does mean that we should dress and reveal the glory of God according to our sex and gender. We need to present ourselves and reveal who God made us to be. Our bodies have a divine design, and that design enables the fulfillment of the maker's mandate in verses 28 to 31. In these verses, we see that man is commissioned to reproduce image bearers, to rule over God's creation. The Lord God fully expects the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply. It's part and parcel of his plan to see the earth, earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So, so there's a reason that Christians have for some time now identified Genesis chapter 1 verses, uh, in these verses as the cultural mandate. And, and this mandate remains in effect and expected until the close of the age. So for those of you who are married, God expects you to have children. They're a blessing from the Lord. Now that's, that's God's expectation. But God's providence, in his providence, he may providentially hinder some married couples from having children. And that is, that's a hard providence from the Lord. And so we, we share that word, uh, burden with one another. We encourage one another, try and strengthen one another in that burden. But what God is saying here is that he expects married couples to pursue having children, not to put it off. Just as God commissioned man, male and female, to reproduce, so he commissioned them to rule or to exercise dominion, as the, the text says. That means that we are actually to be stewards of creation, to, to use the creation for the benefit and blessing of, of ourselves, those under our care, and our neighbors as well. And this reality means that we should carry out our vocations vigorously and joyfully. We can bless others through our work. We should do that, not only to bless others, but to bring God glory. So this is, this is what we do. We pursue our work. There's purpose in our work. We're imitating our creator and his work and his stewarding his creation for the glory of his name. So we, we, we follow uh, the Lord God's example in this way. So while we rule, while we exercise dominion, we remember who we are. We are made by an author. We're under his authority. So that means we can't exercise dominion for, for selfish ends. That means we, we can't build little kingdoms for ourselves. We use our work to seek to build up God's kingdom and to make his goodness and greatness known to the world. This is going to be the, the main subject of our men's retreat that Ian mentioned at the beginning of the service. So brothers, I want to encourage you to sign up for that men's retreat in October. Um, in verse 31, you see there, we, we see the creator's benediction. He declares the work of his creation very good. Uh, this is God's way of saying that I've made a place that is beautiful and bountiful for my creatures to dwell. Indeed, God's creation ought to lead us to wonder and worship. We ought to be like those gathered around God's throne in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, saying, Worthy are you 
our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That's what God actually wants to call us into as we begin to look at the seventh day. The world has been founded, formed, and filled. We've moved from void to very good, from empty to enjoyable. But this is not the end of the creation account, nor is it the climax of the creation story itself. The climax of the creation account is what we read in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Here we read of the finishing of everything. This is our fourth and final point, which we'll consider briefly. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In these verses, we see that God's creation work, it comes to a close, and he consecrates that final day. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, we have an echo of chapter 1, verse 1, right? Both verses mention the heavens and the earth. Twice, these verses declare that God's work was finished. Three times, and he's the fact that it's finished, It's complete. And the words seventh day also get three references, which highlights that Moses doesn't merely want us to see this as the conclusion, but really as the climax of the creation narrative. This is an invitation to enter into communion with our creator and to enjoy his rest. That's what it means. That's what actually we were made for, right? To glorify God and enjoy communion with him forever. After all, there's no conclusion to this day. Did you notice that? With the previous six days, we're told that there was morning, there was evening, the first day, second day, and so on into the sixth day. But we have no such conclusion here. There's no, and there was morning, there was evening, the seventh day. It's almost an invitation to come in and enjoy this day with God and enjoy him and his creation. Moreover, God consecrated the day and he made it holy. In other words, he especially set it apart to be enjoyed. Now God, he didn't need rest. He wasn't tired. But what he was doing was deliberately setting a pattern for his people to follow to come to him, to rest in him, and exchange work for the worship of him one day in seven. God was inviting Israel even to imitate him. In the history of Israel, the Sabbath day was given as a sign for the nation as a whole. On them, who would keep working because their gods were demanding. But Israel's God was a doting God. He delighted in his people, and he wanted to give them a good gift. And one of his good gifts, one of his good gifts was a day of rest and enjoying him. He's the God who would say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Rest for your soul. Imitation of God in the Sabbath pattern. They would show that they were people who belonged to the God who worked and rested. The Sabbath sign was like a wedding ring. It signified that a man belongs to a particular woman. The Sabbath sign was like baptism, and that baptism signifies that we belong to Jesus. We believe he lived for us, he died for us, and was raised for us. We're showing that in our baptism. So the Sabbath sign visibly proclaimed that Israel belonged to God. Have you ever considered that you might be able to show the world that you belong to the Lord who made heaven and earth by laboring hard like him for six days and resting like him on one? Have you considered that you could imitate God and the very pattern that he set at the beginning of creation? And I think the six-in-one pattern transcends time and is God's good gift to us. Those of us who are finite, those of us who actually get ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ,
But this six-in-one pattern is also transformed and deepened by the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer do God's people rest from their labors and gather for worship on Saturday. We're all here on Sunday, right? Instead, we rest in Jesus Christ and worship him on Sunday, the day he got up from the grave. Early Christians started calling Sunday the Lord's Day. They recognized it was a day that belonged to him. They would use it for his service. Just as God the Father consecrated a day in creation, so we may say Jesus, when he inaugurated the new creation by his resurrection of the dead, consecrated a day. The Lord's Day belongs to him. But he beckons us to enter into his worship. Just like God the Father beckoned Israel to enter into communion and worship with him on the Sabbath. Friends, I wonder if you, if you kind of step back and look at the creation narrative as a whole. Do you see how God created everything and everyone for his glory? And yet how he invites to obey him, to imitate him, and in to enjoy him, to worship him, to obey him, to imitate him. I wonder if you have entered into the rest that God offers to you and to your soul. As we've learned here, God, he, he made us. He made us to reflect his holy character to the world. If we search our hearts, that we know honestly that we're filled with sin. God made us to represent his goodness and glory. But too often we've been greedy for our own glory and making our own names great. God made us to relate to him and to others around us in love. But we've spurned his love. And we've sometimes been unloving toward others. God made us to be righteous like him. But sadly, at times, we've pursued wickedness. God made us to be responsible stewards of his creation. But we've often been selfish. God made us to reverence and worship him. But we've exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of the creation. In all of this, we've gone against God's good design for us. We've sinned and disobeyed God. And our sin has entitled us to God's justice and judgment. And really, just like Adam was kicked out of the Garden of Eden for his sin in Genesis 3... We deserve to be eternally banished from God's presence. After all, our sins are against the eternal God, and so they require an eternal just punishment. But the beginning of this story has a middle and has an end. God knows that we are finite, fallible, and fallen, and that's why he sent his son into the world, to live the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. So when God the Father told his son to go and obey, that's exactly what Jesus did. He said that it is my food to do my Father's will. That's what satisfied him the most. And he always obeyed God the Father. Being the image of the invisible God, he perfectly represented God on earth. He showed us what God was like, full of love and grace and truth, full of so many things that we sinners like us. And he laid down his life on the cross. He was crucified on the cross, nailed there, and punished for our sin against God, for our working in sin. The wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death. That's why Jesus had to die. So he represented God in his life and us, and he represented us on the cross, taking the, sub the punishment for our sins, being the substitute for us, standing in our place. But that was not the end of Jesus' story. For three days after Jesus' death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. So Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. Friend, the reason that your soul doesn't have rest is because you've been looking for love in all the wrong places. Jesus is the only right place where you can find rest for your weary soul. So come to him, believe in him, trust in him, turn from your sin, and obey him. What he speaks, what he says, do. Serve and follow him with great joy, for he's rescued you from the divine wrath that you deserve to face for your sins. And he will welcome you forever into God's new creation. 
which is what I want us to think about as we conclude. The Bible begins with creation, and the Bible ends with a new creation, where sin can never enter in, and death is known no more. The beginning of creation was designed to cultivate hope in our hearts for the end, and the full communion that we can have with our Creator. When we've heard Moses' account of the beginning, consider John's account of the end and the new creation in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7. This is what John writes. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give the soul be his God, and he will be payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Friend, you can be a son or daughter of God. He invites you to come in, was to draw us into today through Jesus Christ. The goal of the beginning of the creation account was to draw us into communion with our creator, to call us to worship, obey, and imitate him. The goal of the new creation account is to assure us that one day we will rest from all of our earthly labors and enjoy perfect communion and rest with God, to dwell with him in glory. It's a glorious beginning in Genesis 1. It's an even more glorious end. And if you are to reach that end, you have to begin at the beginning. So will you? Will you recognize that God made everything and everyone, including you? Will you give him your worship, your obedience, and will you imitate him? Will you imitate the one who founded everything, who formed everything, who filled everything, and who finished everything? Let that be the desire of your heart today. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are so very good to us. You have been good to make your power, and you have been good to reveal yourself to us in your word, to show us your power and your glory. And we give you honor and praise for all that you have done, and yet will do. We especially give you praise for all that you have done in Jesus Christ, that we may enter into communion with you, knowing your love and your grace and your truth. Father, we pray and ask that you would fill us with faith this day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.